All right, folks, welcome back to the Bill Bennett Show. This is the podcast that translates Trump, and we're going to do a lot of Trump translation today with our two guests. We're also going to take a look at those uh, elections with the guy who knows the most, I believe. Mm-hmm. You talked to him yesterday at length, right, Sean yes, Trendy? Yes, yes, And uh, we will take an honest look at those elections, an honest look at the current administration, and expose and talk about the existential threats to America. And right now, one of the threats to America is... Will people abide by a peaceful democratic election of president or not? Because that's what's going on. People just do not accept Donald Trump as president. And um, I know there's a lot of talk about, you know, well, both sides and both sides need to moderate. But the main problem here is that people don't accept Donald Trump as president. And they're getting madder and madder and madder. And the matter they get, the matter he gets. Joining me today is Sean Trendy, Senior Election Analyst for Real Clear Politics, midterm elections right around the corner. We'll get his thoughts on how he sees things shaping up. We'll also hear from our friend, your friend, David Galerner. He's Professor of Computer Science at Yale. He's Chief Scientist at Mirror Worlds Technologies, Contributing Editor at the Weekly Standard, and Member of the National Council of the Arts. This is a guy with diverse and great intelligence, mm-hmm. one of the smartest people we know. He wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal titled, The Real Reason They Hate Trump. He'll share that with us today. Then we'll hear from John McNabb. John is uh, someone I met uh, at the time of the election of the president. He's the vice chairman of the American Leadership Council, co-founder of the Trump Leadership Council, and former chairman and CEO of the Wilbros Group. He says President Trump has been a wake-up call for America. We'll get his thoughts today on this show. Several things I want to talk about today. Uh, we got a big show. we got a lot of people, a lot of commentary. But um, a couple of things I picked up on. I was watching our friend Andy McCarthy, Claude, uh, on TV, and people were talking to him, interviewing him about these horrible um, actions, uh, Soyuk, uh, the, the, the bombs or right. phony bomb, fake bomb, whatever they were, uh, but uh, certainly a dangerous situation. Sure. Uh, he was... Uh, wishing no good to the people he sent him to. Donald Trump, of course, condemned it, but then was held responsible for it. Then we had this catastrophe in uh, Pittsburgh. In Pittsburgh, right. Worst yeah. anti-Semitic uh, actions in American history, uh, slaughter of people, and uh, just awful, just terrible. Um, Andy was talking about this, and he was asked, well, you know, this is being attributed to Donald Trump, and, you know, this increase in this kind of activity. And he, of course, dismissed the notion that Donald Trump was 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 responsible, which he should have. But then he also pointed out at the very end, he said, actually, a number of incidents are down. Uh, he didn't fill that in, but I wrote Andy and he wrote me back this morning. And um, he said, I think what you heard is my telling someone at Fox that uh, with things like the atrocity in Pittsburgh are horrific. We need to put it in historical perspective. We actually have remarkably few terrorist incidents today, especially domestic terrorism, compared to the 70s when there were thousands of such incidents. Oh, okay. Now, wow. Andy remembers this because Andy did these prosecutions, you know, back in the 90s. In the last four or five years, I reviewed a book by Brian Burroughs called Days of Rage, which is a history of domestic terrorism in that era. Think of the Weathermen, the Black Panthers, the Symbionese Liberation Army, etc., uh, it's really uh, it's really terrible. It's real terror, and there was a lot of it. And one of the things I pointed out to my National Review colleagues when we were banging around an editorial on the Pittsburgh slaughter, the population of the U.S. in 1970 was 205 million. Today, it's 330 million. We have well over 50% more people, yet vastly fewer terrorist incidents and much lower crime rates. The country is so divided, so we see it presented on TV and media reports that we think things are increasing dramatically. Uh, there's, of course, increased coverage, and there's so many, yeah, so much media. 7 news cycles, right. social media, yeah. 
but actually we miss the fact that we're living in the best time uh, in the history of the world. Uh, in terms of domestic tranquility here in the United States. I wouldn't be able to tell you that. <laughs> I wouldn't believe it. You, if you would not that, yeah. figure that out from wow. the news. But put it in perspective, have we had any story that says we're living comparatively with the numbers, with the facts, in actually a very peaceful time, and we should thank President Trump for that? No. No, I, I, I missed that one. I don't suspect I'm, it. I'll see that on my Twitter feed. I missed that one. <laughs> we, we may we want to get Mr. Burroughs someday, you know, okay. uh, on that book. But uh, tip of the hat to uh, to Andy. Thank you very much, Andy. One other piece of uh, opinion here on the Soyuk thing. Um, uh, the guy who was sending these bombs, um, mm -hmm. imperfect as they were, uh, nevertheless intended with all malignity. And I guess he hoped they'd explode. I just came across this item. Just listen to this, Claude. Soyuk was arrested in 2002 for threatening uh, to place a bomb. He was also convicted in 2014 for grand theft and misdemeanor theft, and in 2013 for battery. In 2004, he faced several felony charges for unlawful possession of synthetic anabolic steroids. He also had several arrests for theft in the 90s, and he faced a felony charge for obtaining fraudulent refunds and account of tampering with physical evidence. Sayak also had a run-in with authorities over possession of steroids in another case in Broward County, Florida, charged with possessing a fake driver's license after altering his birth date to make him appear younger. Um, his mind, as uh, one commentator said, doesn't seem to operate like most people. It shows in his anger, his emotion, his behavior. And in a long record of criminal behavior, whatever happened to three strikes and you're out? I want to come back to this thing we've talked about before. I think we've talked about it. You remind me on the podcast about deinstitutionalization. We did. We talked a lot about it. Yep. 80s and 90s and 80, 85% of the people who were in mental institutions were released. Some of them should, should have been. A lot of them shouldn't have been. Uh, we did this for good motives. You know, medications were out there. We thought medications could keep people calm and fine. We also wanted the um, LRE, the least restrictive environment. Uh, and we had a more latitudinarian view of mental health. But with the release, uh, the opening up of these uh, mental institutions and the release of so many, the odds that we were going to have a lot of people on the street who would behave like a PSYOC uh, I don't know if he was ever in one, should have been, or greater. And we need to think about that as well. Uh, think about things like that more than pointing to Donald Trump, seems to me. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Bill Bennett Show. Okay, it's time to welcome David Galernter to the show. He's professor of computer science at Yale, chief scientist at Mirror Worlds Technologies. Man, I, you know, I was watching Morning Joe this morning, and then I went over to CNN. Holy smokes. It is right out there. I mean, they just hate this guy. And, I, you know, my own view, at yeah. one time, yours, is we are not equally responsible for this hatred. I mean, they are not accepting the fact that he's the president of the United States. That's, that's it. That's what it all comes from. Uh, yeah, and they seem to find some virtue in the idea of contempt for democracy and the idea that they've risen above. That is, the people have just manifested their stupidity and uh, and they're too smart to be taken in by uh, bad behavior on the part of the nation or, or a majority of the nation or a majority of the, elect the electoral college. Not only do they do it, but they're proud of it. And um, I, I have to wonder, to some extent, uh, you're the education expert whether we're not seeing children 
take over the press who really have no concept of what democracy is all about, what kind of milestone the United States still represents in, the, in world history. I think they're, they're ignorant and will stay ignorant because when, when will they ever learn? They live in a left world entirely and uh, oh, well. are paid by left bosses and cheered by left listeners. Bizarre. Well, that's why I called my book, my three volumes, America, The Last Best Hope, because that was the first thing right. I wanted to teach, was that right. we still are the first and best and last best hope of Earth. And right, and if I could put you in touch with every last American, but particularly in the world I live in, the benighted world I live in, uh, yeah. Yeah, I, nothing would do more for the United States, but they are determined not to listen to you if they can avoid it. I mean, they don't want to hear. They, they, they're they worried that they might hear the truth, inconvenient truth. It's interesting to uh, hear someone who's a professor at Yale describe his environment as benighted. Yeah, benighted is too gentle a word, okay. uh, because not a, not only is it benighted, but it uh, replaces something that could be yep. so important and valuable. All right, why do they hate Trump? Partly they hate Trump because he doesn't kowtow to them. I mean, he he doesn't have a, a humble bone in his body, and uh, he's his own man. He, he says what he wants to say. He isn't scared of anybody. Uh, he comes right out and says what he wants to say, and um, and and the American public and certainly the American press is is used to being treated more respectfully. So he's the average American. You wrote an exaggerated form, blunt, simple, willing to fight, mistrustful of intellectuals. Every big U.S. election, this is David Glartner, is interesting, but the coming midterms are fascinating for a reason most commentators forget to mention. The Democrats have no issue. The economy's booming. America's international position is strong. In foreign affairs, the U.S. has remembered in the nick of time what Machiavelli advised princes five centuries ago. Don't seek to be loved. Loved, seek to be feared. He's the average American in exaggerated form. Blunt, simple, willing to fight, mistrustful of intellectuals. Say more. I think that's true. I don't. I don't know that that's why people voted for him, but they felt it, um, even if they didn't say it explicitly. Um, we are so used to the canned, packaged product. It is so uh, strange to us to see a politician who hasn't devoted his entire life to grooming himself for this particular uh, semi-clerical job. That somebody who who, who really is, in many ways, normal and doesn't claim to be uh, uh, more than normal, not a Superman intellectually or morally or spiritually, not a great Obama thinker, but uh, just a normal guy, is a shock. And um, people feel a shock of recognition without even knowing what causes it, I think. Yeah. And it's a welcome shock. We hate Trump. This uh, is an instructive hatred on the part of the left, because what the left hates about Donald Trump is precisely what it hates about America. Let me just read a little more from your piece. Not that every leftist hates America, but the leftists I know do hate Mr. Trump's vulgarity, his unwillingness to walk away from a fight, his bluntness, his certainty that America is exceptional, his mistrust of intellectuals, his love of simple ideas that work, and his refusal to believe that men and women are interchangeable. Worst of all, he has no ideology except getting the job done. His goals are to do the task before him, not be pushed around, and otherwise to enjoy life. In short, he's a typical American, except exaggerated. He 
he's larger than life, American, right? Um, absolutely. And uh, being a billionaire several times over, I can't claim that he really sees life as the average American does. Um, he's had he's always been rich and in many ways had an easy time of it. But on the other hand, he hasn't chosen to take himself off to uh, an, an island somewhere and wall out the world of reality. He's interested in reality, and I think he cares something for people who he knows have instincts not very different from his. Um, certainly, uh, uh, being political life is a headache, a, a nuisance, even if you can pay for it yourself. Um, it does represent a sacrifice of sorts to somebody who has everything and can afford anything. And he undertook it knowing that he would have a rough time. I don't think he, I don't think he anticipated the degree of the, the, the verbal violence and the hatred that emerged because he'd always been treated in a fairly, uh, benevolent way by the press when he didn't represent any kind of a threat. I think you can see his, his, his surprise. I, I mean, you, you can see him look around and say, I'm not such a bad guy. I mean, what, what evil thing have I done that you've all ganged up on me like this? Yeah. But I think, I, I think the United States, I, I think the citizenry, broadly speaking, understands, I know they understand, that the attack on Trump is, an, is a veiled attack on them, that, that they are despised by the elite who run this country or who, 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 who run the financial aspects of the country. Thank God they don't really run the country per se, but who certainly run the universities, who run the educational systems, who run the publishing and the, and, and, and the TV and movie and, and, and books and newspaper business. And um, these people have needed attacking for, for a good long time, but uh, most Republicans are far too polite yeah. to attack them. Most Republicans think what Trump does, but won't say what Trump says. And that's why he's such an innovation and something so new. You, you make an interesting turn in this essay. I was thinking about it, not to over-intellectualize it and become an intellectual. <laughs> God forbid. Uh, given that a bad name, too. You know, used to be. Uh, well, yeah, yeah. I used to be proud know, of reading you know, books. Now you, I'm not so sure. Yeah. You know, one 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 can't but admire the intellectuals and admit uh, that that one aspires to be one, and it's really not something to be ashamed of. And yet, so many intellectuals have disgraced themselves. It's yeah. uh, it's, it's one of the saddest aspects of this whole thing. What's that? Instead phrase? of admiring them, what's we, that French uh, phrase? Treason of the clerks. What is it? Right, raison de right, a famous book that. Uh, not as exciting as one would, in my view. But anyway, the title is important. What's the title? The Treason of the Clerks. I'm trying to think of the French title, and I can't think of yeah, it. Yeah, Treason, but, something, yeah, whatever. Yeah, We'll get a right. listener. But, but here, here's, here's the interesting turn. We're in these approaching these midterms, and a lot of debates out there, and you will see the Democrat turn to the Republican candidate and say, Trump, 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 as if every... Every person there is a, is a proxy for Trump, and Trump is really the target. Aha! Right. Uh -huh. right. Well, see, it's not really, it's not really Josh Hawley, or it's not really, uh, uh, you know, uh, Jacob uh, Johnson in, in Michigan or or Scott right. in Florida. It's Trump. You've right. taken right. it a step further and said when they, when they unload on Trump, in some ways, he's a proxy for the American people, whom they really have the contempt for.
And you see this come out. Sometimes they'll say the Trump followers are all fill in the blank, racist and white nationalist, etc. Yeah, right. And, and and you heard Hillary Clinton say things like this uh, during the yeah. campaign, and other yeah. Democrats have done it. Yeah. It's um, the, the, the contempt is clear. And, and I think when you hear somebody like Hillary Clinton address an audience like Yale or some other university, she gave a talk at Yale, and the contempt is plainer. It's uh, in the tone, in, in, in the expression on the face, in the laughter and the applause yeah. in the audience. Yeah. Um, the, that, knowing, uh, the knowing laughter, yeah. The knowing laughter. We know that better. It, we know better. Yeah. Exactly. It is so sad. That is so ultimately pathetic in this country. It's a great phrase. Um, and I'll tell you how I got it. This go down memory lane. I'll throw a little Latin at you. Odi profanum vulgus. Ha, that's a, a great Horace statement, yes. And it translates as? At Archeo, right. I loathe the vulgar masses and keep them at a distance. Right, I loathe the vulgar crowd. This was, <laughs> I was put onto this by our old friend, a mutual friend, Neil Kazadoy, in an essay by George Steiner, if you can remember that name. Oh, of course. In The New Yorker, and it was about his debate with the early feminists. And he talked about the world his father lived in of men and women and how the world was changing. And he ended it, I think, with Odi Profanum Vulgus. I remember I wrote it down and I've treasured it since. <laughs> I, I don't know where I first uh, came across it. Maybe in Neil's piece also. Yeah. It made yeah. a big impression on me also. Yeah. But I remember Neil and I were talking about it. And a, a month later, I, he said, I'm taking my kids to Disney World. And I said, why? He said, because... <laughs> I am part of the profanum vulgus. <laughs> if we like it, they well, hate it. The better people, the more sophisticated people. There's a lot to be said for that. And uh, if he does it, uh, it's an admirable thing to do, as I know without even thinking, because Neil was incapable of behaving in a less than admirable way. We, um, we, when we were talking during the John Kerry run for president, just these revealing moments, and, and I recall that they stopped late one night. I, I was pleased to hear uh, John Kerry and Teresa Hines Kerry stopped uh, for a late snack at McDonald's. I said, oh, well, that's the best thing I've heard in a long time. And then I heard that when Teresa Hines Kerry went into McDonald's, she said, do you have any French food? <laughs> <laughs> Well, that says it all. Yeah. I mean, they, yeah. They have more important worlds to inhabit than the United States of America. That's, that's I mean, right. That's right. Well, it's a very interesting, very interesting thought. And so people know this, don't they? I mean, the American people know they're being insulted. Um, and, they, and they know when they're attacking, when the left is attacking Trump, that they're being attacked. Sure, they know it. I mean, we are a generous people. I think uh, Trump supporters are represent many of the most generous instincts in the United States. They tend to block it out. They don't like to think of the of the disgrace implied by a large segment of the population looking at the founders and creators and builders and sustainers and maintainers of the nation with such contempt, being uh, looked on with contempt by people who are who are uh, are peripheral um, and in in many cases. Um, destructive, uh, who've done so such enormous damage to the education in this country, and people see it in their children, and, and have to re-educate them if their children are going to have any education yeah. at all. Yeah. And, 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 and they look at, at the press attempting to do what North Korea was believed to be doing uh, during the Korean War, brainwashing, creating an automatic response to the word 
Trump, and you hear it on the campaign trail, exactly yeah. as you say. If a, a Democrat says Trump, 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 and the and expecting the crowd to froth over in hatred, and sometimes it does yeah. if he's picked the crowd correctly. I mean, the media, the press can do this. They've got access, and they've got coverage and breadth and depth, and when they pick a target and they all agree on it, they really can do enormous destructive damage. Yeah. And I think it's hitting people... Perhaps in this election, it's coming home to some people who have avoided thinking about it. And uh, uh, I, I, have a, I have a feeling it's bringing the Republican Party back together, although maybe that's well, it is. too optimistic. It is. It is. Let me ask you, uh, David, we gotta, we got to go, uh, but um, it would be an affectation of me not to ask. You're a Jew, a religious Jew, Orthodox Jew, if I remember correctly. Is that right? Uh, yes, I am. Uh, Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh and the reaction to it and the media reaction to it and the blaming of Donald Trump for it. Uh, I can't say how profoundly offensive and uh, unacceptable it is for county. Um, uh, it goes without saying the mass murder of Jews is not acceptable but for a group of Jews in Pittsburgh to uh, issue conditions under which Trump will be welcome to come to the city, not unless he denounces A, B, C, and D. In the following terms, will we be pre prepared to welcome him to the city to, to have the gall to proclaim this as some sort of policy of the Jewish community, as if they spoke for the uh, for the large number of of Jews who, whether they are Republicans or left-wing Democrats, don't think of the President of the United States in those terms. And, and, and aren't willing to, to, to allow the office to be demeaned in that way. The performance of, 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 of the left in general and the left of the Jewish community in particular has been fine in some cases, but in some cases has been sickening. I mean, compounding a tragedy, compounding a sickening crime with, uh, with a slimy, sleazy reaction that, uh, that turns people's stomachs. And, uh, I, I, th these, these moments remind me again and again what an enormously generous country this country is. I, I, I'm not, I'm not proud of the fact that, they, but, but it is the case that Jews have been leaders of the left for, since the left was invented, or almost since the left was invented. Jews have, uh, Jews have told lies about this country, as have all leftists, of course, not to any special extent. But Jews are always easy to single out, and the United States has stubbornly refused ever to do that. And under provocation that any country in Europe would buckle under instantly, we are a noble people, and we won't buy it. And uh, there, there, there is no silver lining to mass murder. There's no silver lining to sleazy and slimy reactions to mass murder. And yet, in the final analysis, one is proud of the country and remains proud and gets prouder, I think, every year, every day. Will you offer, uh, as so many do, the obligatory but? Um, but, yes, the president needs to tamp down. Yes, he needs to not say the press is the enemy of the people. Yes, he needs to not, uh, you know, point fingers at these people who receive these bombs or pseudo-bombs. Uh, do you say that as well? Civil discourse, he could help more than he is. Do you go along with that I, or not? I think he, I think he hurts himself with his base when he uses terms that are 
that don't befit the awe-inspiring dignity of the office. There really is the dignity of the office. This is the office that George Washington and Abraham Lincoln held. It is deserving of more respect than it gets from Trump. But in the final analysis, people's personalities don't change. It's uh, it's silly. It's it's vain and preposterous to say let's uh, let's alter A, B, and C and keep X, Y, and Z. That's not the way people work. And not, as a not, package, at se- not at seventy, as I tell you. Yeah, and as a package. Uh, Trump is not perfect. I don't know anybody who is, but he is a winning package for us at this time. And I'm willing to take the bad with the good. Because you know, he proved he's worth it. You know, uh, do you know our friend Mark Thiessen? Do you know Mark's work? Yeah, sure. Mark yep. uh, did an editorial. I don't know if you've seen it. Uh, it's recent. We could send it to you. But uh, mm, we, we put a no. link up to it. We, uh, I, I read from it. He said, yeah. yeah, Trump says lies, says things that aren't true, exaggerates, you know, Queens, blah, 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 New York guy, the biggest, the best, you know, big league. But he said right. in terms of honesty on one scale, maybe the most honest president in recent history, promise keeping. In terms of the things he said he would do or try to do, it's an extraordinary record. Whether you're talking about moving the embassy, tax cuts, trying to get the wall up, appointing traditional conservatives, um, the pipeline, uh, just uh, 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 loosening the ties a hold of the regulatory state. This guy has delivered, like him or Absolutely not, like his true. policies are not, better than any president in, right. in recent Not history. only delivered, but on these issues that we've seen people fail to, to carry through again and again, regulation being a typical one, the embassy in Jerusalem being another typical case, and one candidate after another and another and another and another repeats things that they have no intention of carrying through Republicans as well as Democrats. And Trump gets the credit for doing things that he is going to get no credit for, obviously, in the media, and maybe his base doesn't even care that much about. Certainly the location of the, of the embassy in Israel matters enormously to a small portion of the population. Most people don't care. But nonetheless, honesty, uh, truth are, are part of his game, an important yeah. part of his game. Yeah. And uh, time for him to get credit, but we never will reach that time, I don't think, in our lifetimes. I think he's going to get credit for this, these latest two moves uh, that at least I'm aware of. One saying that uh, your sex is what uh, you're born with at birth. You're really, um, okay, you're laughing. Yeah. And how about how about? Yeah, chap- you'd think it, you, one would think it, well, one of the more obvious statements. But of course, we know that uh, far from it to people who succeed in in making the obvious obscure and the obscure. And anyway, yeah. Do, do, do maternity? I was just occurred to me as you're saying that. Do maternity ward nurses now say when 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 the father comes in and says what? You know, do they say, well, is it a boy or a girl? Do they say it's whatever you decide? We haven't been able to determine that yet, sir, but maybe in 10 or 15 years. It's up to you. We'll have a flash for you. It's up to you now and then up to the child. Uh, They probably, you know, nursing schools are very progressive institutions. They're probably teaching that today. Yeah. Proper etiquette to to the newborn uh, sex undetermined. And then birthright citizenship, speaking of birth. You see, he's challenging. Yeah, that. yeah. I, you know, I think uh, he, he's done so much that even even his supporters are are caught on the style with which he does things. The way he addresses is such a surprise. The language he uses is is, is a constant surprise. Sometimes a bad surprise. Um, often uh, often refreshing. I, I I think people haven't got his measure yet um, because there's more new and unexpected here than we've seen in a president in decades or generations. 
Um, I don't think they've caught on, but they are catching on slowly. Uh, the country is in is in good shape. Obviously, we've got a million problems, but uh, obviously a dramatic but, uh, but, improvement over what we saw under Obama. It's impossible even for a Democrat to miss, and we'll come to terms with this la- eventually. La- last thought, we're in good shape. Uh, our friend Alan Gelzo, you know Alan Gelzo, yeah. great uh, historian, says uh, in many ways we're in great shape, but he also says we are more divided than we have ever been uh, other than the Civil War. I think that's false. I think the, um, I mean, literally, I think, I, I think it's too easy simply because, uh, the talking classes are so entirely of, of, of one opinion because the culture has been captured and is being run by the left partly because the right just doesn't bother. I mean, there could be conservative curators of museums and and art historians yeah. and poets. It's just that conservatives don't bother, and I wish they did. I know, Me but too. because of that, we get a false impression. And I don't think the nation is divided at all. I think the nation is in 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 basically in a in a cheerful optimistic mood. Uh, I think we're going to be surprised at the results of this election. Well, that's just going to say, if you saw a blue wave, uh, would you reconsider what you just said? I'd reconsider understanding the time scale. I'd reconsider the the deadly power of the media, but I wouldn't reconsider the facts on the ground, which is that Trump is doing things that everybody can appreciate and understand. Uh, despite the unprecedented campaign of hate launched against the man, and he will be widely appreciated and understood within his lifetime anyway, if not this year or next. Excellent. Thank you, David. Um, thank you. Go thank you. Take out the garbage. <laughs> yeah, right. Do, back to work. Do, what, do whatever else. That, back, to my, back to my agenda. That, yeah. Back to, um, <laughs> Well, Sidney Hook, I remember Sidney Hook. You remember the great Sidney Hook? Sure. He said once, and he was, wasn't kidding, he said, well, we have a division of labor in our family. Uh, my wife does the everyday things, like besides where we live and where the kids go to school and where we go to church. <laughs> synagogue, uh, I do the important things, like decide when to write a letter to the New York Times. <laughs> right. yeah. Well, that, that's not so wide of the mark for our own uh, for our own brilliant domestic arrangements here. I understand. Suburban I understand. New Haven. I understand. I say, honey, take care of the house. Take care of everything. I'm going to talk to David Gallant. Anyway. Okay. <laughs> yeah, right. Elevated I have exactly the same approach. It works beautifully. Yeah, it works so and, you far. know, the house is in good shape. So yep. what have I got to complain about? I'm, I'm happy. I haven't blown the whistle on you yet. That's why. Okay. <laughs> right. I've made it so far. All right, far. David. Thank you so much. Love to the family. Thank you so much. Uh, many thanks. And, right. and you too. Can thanks. we get together in New York again, please, sometime soon? That would be wonderful the boys talk about it all the time bring your they boys i'll bring my to boys see you guys um yeah th- that would be great it really would be okay thank you sir great thank you Bye-bye. you're listening to the bill bennett show john McNabb is joining us now he's the vice chairman of the american leadership council co-founder of the trump leadership council and former chairman and ceo of the wilbros group now john i think we met at the uh, time of the trump election at uh, an inaugural event in dc is that right? Well, we did at the Hay Adams. Right. And uh, then the interesting story and, and to my lights was um, my son, Joe, my younger son, who went to Duke Business School after serving in the Marine Corps. 
and uh, told me the story that uh, the day after the election, the dean of the business school said, um, there's a movement to wear black around here, and if you all want to do it, that's fine. And son Joe, not being shy, uh, went to see the dean and said, what gives? What's what's going on around here? And it resulted, I think, in an invitation to you, because Joe said, why don't we have some you know, thoughtful conservative people come to Duke Business School? And are you a graduate of Duke Business School or Duke University? I'm a graduate, undergraduate at Duke, and also a graduate of the business school. Program. All right, so you got a lot of Duke credentials. Uh, anyway, and then uh, and then you came, and I think you and Joe were on a panel. Is it, do I have this right? Yeah, we we did. I actually they they allowed me to speak at be on the distinguished speaker series. Allowed you to speak. Okay, good. Yes, they allowed me to, and then uh, and then I there was a breakout group about thirty young people. Great group of people. And by the way, your son also played football at Princeton, I might add. He did. And what a great-looking young man he is. He's okay. He looks like his mother, which is a good thing. <laughs> and anyway, uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful story, a wonderful history. And I uh, wrote Joe this morning saying we were going to talk, and he's going he's gonna to listen up. Uh, I, my world is the Beltway, John. Um, we we uh, actually are legal residents of North Carolina. We're down there as much as we can. Not lately, because our house is on the ocean, or what's left of our house is on the ocean or in the ocean <laughs> right now. But uh, basically, you know, we are, we are inside the Beltway a lot of time. Your, your world is the world. Um, and your impressions of Donald Trump, and uh, you called him a wake-up call. Uh, let's start with the largest perspective. As you travel nationally, internationally, what's the impression of Donald Trump? Uh, sitting here inside the Beltway, you would think that he's much hated, much reviled, uh, and uh, deeply divisive and polarizing. So, uh, first of all, what, what the president's done is revitalized America's view vis-a-vis -vis the world. People respect America again, Bill. I, when Obama took over, he did that famous leading from behind his apology tour around the world. And uh, you know, I think America lost a lot of its esteem internationally. I don't think we were respected. And to have a safe world, like it or not, the United States has to be viewed very positively as a strong character, a strong entity. That really helps solidify the safety in the world. And Donald Trump's done that. So, But what you see in Europe, and we just got back from a you know, multi-country trip, Darlene and I did, and you know, the media is the same there as it is here. Uh, the media has become lazy. The media is biased. And really, that's on our university system. There's very little journalism anymore. It's almost like real journalism is dead in the United States, Bill. Yeah, we, uh, you know, it's interesting you mentioned the universities because uh, this morning, just before our call to you, we talked to David Galerner, who's a professor of computer science at Yale, um, Orthodox Jew, um, PhD in lots of things, and a deeply conservative man. And he talked about the word he used was benighted the benighted state of ignorance at Yale. That's an interesting idea, the benighted state of ignorance at Yale. One would think it would be a place of enlightenment and wisdom. Afraid not, and maybe even my alma mater, Williams, Harvard, your alma mater, Duke, maybe not. I spoke at the Sanford School uh, yesterday evening, uh, and where, I want to be prepared this, for this. Where, where's the Sanford School? Oh, the Sanford School of Public Policy at Duke University. Right, okay, Terry Sanford, and, right. Uh, Terry Sanford, who was one of my great people in my life, one of my mentors, great personal friend of mine. You know, he was president of Duke University, governor of North Carolina, yep. United States senator, a physical conservative, but a social liberal. And I'm, a, I'm the same way, by the way. I'm a very devout physical conservative, but 
I am a social liberal, although I, I vote Republican. I'm, I'm deeply re- conservative that way. I do believe we need to take care of all our people, but they need to take care of themselves as well. Sure. Um, and, you know, the predominance in that class of 12, there were a couple former, in fact, there's one Army officer that's good, that a West Point grad, a major, uh, who served in uh, Afghanistan and a great young man. He had to leave to introduce somebody else uh, at the school, but he's going to be teaching at West Point. And then a young, uh, a young officer, a Marine officer. And there were probably three young people in that class who had some conservative leanings, and the rest were pretty liberal. Yeah. And so it was, um, it was sort of a wake-up call for me and for them, I think, because I, I'm a easy-to-get-along-with kind of guy till I'm not. And you know, we, <laughs> uh, and I get along well, you know, with people, and because I, I do love civil public discourse, and the incivility in this country is amazing. And Donald Trump didn't create this. Right. This was created basically by the media and by people paying others to be uncivil. So it was an interesting uh, talk. In fact, I'd like to go back to the Sanford School and do a major talk there, and I'm going to try to get that done. I think people need to hear both sides, and I think these elite universities, they're very polarized there, Bill. Yeah, and very narrow, and very narrow. I mean, there's yeah. uh, there's one view, and um, and uh, it's it's enforced. It's done in the hiring, and um, it's it's really quite quite amazing. The place that Justice Holmes called the marketplace of ideas, you know, America and the campus particularly is not a marketplace of ideas. It's not a free marketplace of ideas. It, it truly is. In fact, I watch and I've observed on some of these campuses and I was chairman at the University of Houston. And I taught there for about six years and I taught overseas. I taught Chinese oil executives, a merger and acquisition course. So yeah, I've done a lot of stuff as you have as well, my friend. But what I see is a really a lack of, of discourse. I mean, people get upset with each other. And I think it's ingrained in the in our society at this point. But Donald Trump didn't create this. I would love to talk a little bit about, you know, his tweets, if you'd like to do that. Sure, I think no, that by, all, by all means, by all means. You know, if you think about the president's style, and I know him, and he's a, he's a wonderful guy. He's charming. You know, none of that family uses alcohol or drugs or anything. And they're very thoughtful, interesting, articulate people. He's a very bright guy. He's a quick study as well. But what he's done with the media, he's got the media playing whack-a-mole. And so he, he pops up something. I think what a really good leader does, and I hope I can be considered that, you know, I try to be personally consistent. And I try to be in business fairly inconsistent and very unpredictable. And that's what the president is. And he's got the world leaders around the world, including our the little guy in North Korea, the yeah, whole EU. Yeah. And then if you've seen what he's done with NAFTA and getting rid of TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, I mean, the president really is, is taking the lead back for us, and these trade agreements that he's read and negotiated or killed, really is going to help America and jobs. But, but going back to his style, he throws something out there. Media jumps all over it, and the media typically, because there's very little journalism anymore in America, they just follow along. It's 24/7 news. You know, it's going to McDonald's 24 hours a day. You know, it's just something. It's always the same stuff. And so they just respond to him. And what he did during the campaign, he used his own money, but he actually used the the media in a different way. His tweets uh, reached the underserved majority of Americans who don't have a voice. I mean, if you think about CNN, and I was just in 
Atlanta coming back from a board meeting with my friend Harold Hamm and your friend Harold Hamm. Yes, He's one of the great Americans and one of the great energy leaders in the world. I was just coming back from his board meeting. I was sitting in the Delta Lounge right after this bomber thing came out, these inept guys that put the bombs together. All I saw was that. I watched that for three hours, and they kept talking about this guy, talking about this guy. And there's other things going on in the world. There was a 5,000-person march fleeing the Democratic Party in Washington, D.C. at the same time. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's this Blexit movement. Blexit, yeah. There's a lot of things going on even in the states, and just CNN doesn't cover that. And so CNN is not the voice of most Americans, and the president really is. Now, you know, do I like the tweets? Yeah, I'm not here, and I'm not really qualified to opine on the president's tweets, but what I do know is he's getting plenty of free press. He's actually representing people who don't have a voice. Yeah, I agree with you. And he has goaded the media into this whack-a-mole game. So the president says something, the media reacts immediately. No journalism there, just reacting. And then the president changes changes again and says something else, and then a new mole pops up, and the media's got a bang on it. That's right. That's and the right. president really is playing the media in this country. Yeah. So frustrated. No, I was going to say, uh, you know, I talk to people, and they – appreciate Trump supporters. They appreciate my public support of the president. And then they'll take me aside quietly and say, but, you know, can you break his thumbs or something just as a friendly gesture? So, you know, we don't do this tweeting anymore. And I used to say, well, you know, he's not going to listen to me. Now I say, look, I think we need the tweets. This is how he goes around, you know, the mainstream media. He goes directly to the American people. And, so, you know, some of them are intemperate. Some of them uh, need editing. Some of them need, you know, a broader context. But it is direct communication. And, uh, boy, one understands why he does it. You know, here you get the headline in the Washington Post, John McNabb, saying, you know, Trump supporter sends bombs, you know, all around to, to Democrat leaders. And when we went back and, and looked at the Washington Post at the, the, at the softball shooting, it did not say, headline did not say Sanders supporter uh, shoots a Republican congressman. And, and that, kind of, that kind of thing is just there all the time. And this is why it's uh, increasingly distrusted as an institution, the mainstream press. Absolutely. Tell us about the wake-up call specifically, because this has been a theme of yours as a part of the yeah. Trump leadership yeah. council. Talk about the economy and the wake-up call. Just, just has it been transformational, or is it just a blip? What, what is it? Uh, you know, it's a depression, and this would be Herbert Hoover. And so, almost a hundred years now, every president has had at least one year of GNP growth of three percent or greater. Every year. And now it was a lot easier to do it right after the Depression, obviously. And it was a lot easier to do it actually after this great recession that Obama ended up with, you know, at the end of that or the very, very end of it. So it should have been the President Obama should have really had a chance to pop the economy. But I remember Darlene asking me the day after Obama was elected, she said, what do you think? And I said, well, I'm hoping for the best here. You know, our first post-racial president, which that, did, by the way, didn't happen more divisive than anybody I've been around. Exacerbated you know, revisions by race, absolutely. And But I said, if you'll just focus on jobs, Darlene, I said, I think the country will just do fine. He did everything but that. So Obama was the first president that never had a 3% growth rate in GNP or the economy in one year. Yeah. So he is the worst economic president in a, about 100 years. Oh, People wow. don't want to hear that, but, but it's fact. Now, we, you know, we had a little over almost 4.5% in Q2. We're going to have 
Uh, we just had about a 3.5 or so uh, increase, annualized increase in Q3. Q1 is always going to be slow, and it was. And it looks like we'll probably end up with uh, close to a 3% in Q4, 25 to 3%. What that will mean is a 3.2, approximate 3.2 annual growth for 2018. And it's hard to grow 3% when you're, this economy is as big as it's ever been. So what you have here, Bill, is you've got a guy who's completely turned this economy around. And but what he's done, he's changed, he's changed the impression in America. People have now confidence again. You know, the tax reform right. is a huge thing. And you don't ever hear about the tax reform in the mainstream media. It's put money back in people's pockets. You also have – so what the president said he was going to do, for every one uh, new uh, regulation he put in, he was going to try to get rid of 10 to 15. Then it went to 16. Yeah. And now it's every two he's put in, he's eliminated 22. So what Obama did, he did that – you know, he did his platform, which is a lot of social justice and all the identity politics and all the that you know, stuff that came with Obama – and uh, he really crippled this economy. So the wake-up call for me is the president has done an amazing job of getting rid of, of uh, job-killing regulations. The tax reform has been wonderful. And so what that's done is it, it reinforces to me, again, a little bit of a wake-up call, just how strong this economy is and can be, and by the way, the strongest economy in the world. Let me, let me pick up on that. One of the things we talked with Professor Gerlerner, the Yale professor I mentioned, we talked about earlier today, I asked him about this notion that we're as greatly divided uh, as we've ever been. And uh, David said, uh, I don't think so. He said, I think the media wants us to believe that, and certainly Democrats want us to believe that, and liberals. He said, I think most American people feel we're humming and chucking. We're doing pretty good out there in America. People are pretty good, pretty optimistic. Now, politically, uh, we're seriously divided, but that's a different thing than saying the country's divided like in the days of the Civil War. Right. Yeah, black unemployment's the lowest in history. Right. Hispanic unemployment's the lowest in history. You know, employment participation is extremely up. So is consumer confidence. Right. You know, we're going to have pause on that. Just a sec. Consumer confidence and optimism. And one of the things I look at, uh, as particularly with the upcoming election, is right track, wrong track. And there's been a big increase in the countries on the right track. Uh, over the last two years. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, you know, you've been uh, a, a real hero for me, although uh, I think we're about the same age or I may be older. You've stood for such being such a great American. And, you know, Harold Hamm, uh, you're a good friend of mine. He's I'm I'm a great friend of Harold. I think we that's mutual. and I'm on his board. I've been on both his public boards. And here's another great American. You know, Harold really has helped this energy independence, which we're seeing now. And if you think strategically, as you look at Russia, Russia has a very tiny economy. The Chinese economy is kind of a mess. The only reason we don't know more about that is because the media is so confined in China and it's just yeah. it's a speaking, you know, it's just the voice of the Communist Party, you know, which totals about 5% of the total population in China. So anything that we can do to strengthen ourselves and the, the president strengthening the military is going to cost some money, by the way. This tax reform will pay for itself. My buddy Steve Moore's yeah. uh, on track with that, and you know Steve well as well. Absolutely. So I think that the president's done some really interesting things. He's probably done more things than most presidents will do in a four-year period. Right. This, and putting the embassy in Jerusalem, and remember what the media said and the left. 
there'll be a Middle East war. Remember that? Of course there wasn't going to be a Middle East war. It just further strengthened Israel and further strengthened our relationship with Israel and further strengthened America's interest in the, in the Middle East. Yes, sir. So the president's done an awful lot of good things. I mean, too many things to mention, but, uh, you know, we've got two Supreme Court judges. Sure. We have 168 new federal judges. All right. And we're about in 500 days with this man's done. I mentioned this earlier, but uh, a friend of mine, Mark Thiessen, mentioned this piece several times. He really nailed it in an article in the Post. Uh, he said, you know, Trump exaggerates. Sometimes he just says things that aren't true. He said, but in terms of one index, keeping promises. This is maybe one of the best presidents we've ever had. This guy has actually done what he said he was going to do. And you just made a short list, which could be a lot longer uh, of the things uh, he's going to do. Let me ask you last last question, John. Um, and, and thank you so much for joining us. Um, and that is in the international context, because you just referenced it. Um, the, the, the whole business about competition, tariffs, free trade, um, What's your sense of it? Is is the president on the right track here? Yeah, he, he is. Uh, and of course, he's going to get lots of naysayers. But in my opinion, he is. If you just look at the Trans-Pacific Partnership, that should have been in the ash can, and he did that. Well, the Iran nuclear pact was another joke, and that was an Obama, yep. Clinton, and we got to put John Kerry in that boat, too. It's a totally terrible agreement that all it did was help fund the biggest supporter of terrorism worldwide. And that's been trash can now. And then the, the different kind of uh, regulations that Trump has put and the American government's put on the Iranian government, especially with oil exports. So, you know, he's done, he's done an awful lot uh, to you know, solidify the world in, in probably in a safer way. I think the Russians are going to yeah. probably saber rattle some, but it's in nobody's best interest to start a nuclear war. Yeah. And I don't think there's going to be any kind of war in the Ukraine. We keep hearing about all this. The Chinese are preparing for war in the South China Sea. I flew over that South China Sea bill many, many nights toward Taifong and seeing Hanoi out in the distance and old John McCain's down there in that prison. Uh, there's not going to be a war in the South China Sea either. But the best deterrent for America to, to, for peace in the world is for us to have a strong military and a strong nuclear capability. Yeah. 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 Last thing I just observed because uh, another guest on our show, Joel Farkas, uh, pointed out it, you didn't mention it. I know it's in your mind is the withdrawal from the Paris uh, climate uh, treaty. Oh, yeah. And Joel pointed out to us that we withdrew and our CO2 emissions are down dramatically under Donald Trump. Unlike the countries who have signed on to the agreement, where it's soaring, you know, into the into the sky, China in yeah, particular. Yeah, what Harold's talked about, and what we we, we counseled the president uh, early, well, why he was the the candidate Trump um, about using clean burning natural gas, yeah. and we have two hundred years ability to produce right now to produce clean burning natural gas, and you know, you talk about global warming. I was talking to the students last night at Duke, and I said the Miocene area, uh, the Miocene epoch, which was about 5 million years ago to 23 million years ago, a long epoch, was warmer than this. So I mentioned to the students, I guess they weren't using uh, fuel-efficient cars back yeah. Yeah. a million years ago. I mean, you just can't make this stuff up. So I think I mean, of the Flintstones what, there driving around, yeah, right? right absolutely. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> if, you, if you just think about the Paris Climate Treaty, and Obama says, you know, the 
it's all in now. We just know that we're you know ruining the environment. Point of all this is global heat and global cooling has has occurred throughout the whole you know epics in this country and in the in the world. And we've had very little to do with it. So right now, with this natural gas we're burning, Bill, and we're going to export coal, right, right, uh, we're right. going to keep exporting coal around the world because, that listen, that Indians are using coal like crazy, and so are the Chinese, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and we're having nothing to do that. But we've got the biggest uh, thermal footprint in the world, and we're also one of the, the, the least polluters in the world yeah, if you amazing. start looking at footprint. Amazing. John, thank you very much. Uh, I've been wanting to do this for a long time and catching up to you and your schedule. And uh, keep talking to your alma mater there and the students. They need to hear you. And uh, grateful for your leadership on the Trump Leadership Council. Uh, Thanks, Bill. And, And just grateful for your leadership in America. Thank you, sir. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Joining us now, Sean Trendy, Senior Election Analyst for Real Clear Politics. Okay, the midterms are right around the corner. Uh, Sean, where do you see some potential surprises? Well, I think, um, you know, I, I think the way that this could surprise would be if it breaks heavy one way or the other. I don't know about particular races, uh, except maybe New Jersey Senate that looks like it could possibly be tightening, but I'm skeptical. But, you know, I, I think we've been sitting at this place where most people are talking about a 30-seat Democratic game for a while, but um, given how these races tend to break the same way together, it could easily be, um, you know, 15 Democratic seats, or it could be 45 Democratic seats. It just really depends how things play out. Once the dust settles, how do you see the House and Senate shaping up? Well, I think right now you have to look at the playing field and say that Republicans just have too many uh, brush fighters going on on the House side. I think the Democrats are probably going to pick up uh, enough seats to take the House. I don't think they're going to have a particularly large margin, though. I think we're probably looking at somewhere in the 30s. you know, which would put them in at a smaller margin than they won in 2006. The Senate is another story. I think I think it's just the opposite. The Democrats just have too much vulnerability. Um, you know, they, they've made some solid plays in places like Texas or or uh, Tennessee, but it doesn't look like those are panning out. So we're probably looking at the Democrats uh, or at Republicans maybe even picking up a seat or two in the Senate, having uh, 52-53 uh, seats when the best settles. Are you seeing a trend regarding voter concern, local or national? Some people say all politics is local, and that applies in 2018. Other people are saying Trump is the uh, rooting omnipresence here up in the sky and shaping uh, these elections. You know, you always say that all politics is local, but I'm just not sure that's true anymore. Uh, We're seeing, um, in a lot of ways, nationalized uh, elections where people are really kind of concerned about what the national effect is. These things tend to be uh, referenda on the parties in power, and I think that uh, I think that uh, you know, with Donald Trump's job approval kind of struggling in the low to mid 40s, um, it's, it's going to turn into an uncomfortable situation for Republicans. Are you getting a feel for what turnout might be? It looks like it's going to be a high turnout election, at least from what we see in terms of uh, early voting. Uh, now, it's hard to read too much into the early voting numbers because it could just uh, reflect people wanting to use the early voting uh, technique. Uh, so it's, it's unclear exactly uh, how it is, but I'll be the case we have point to uh, heightened enthusiasm among voters right now. You see anything right now that may be a sign of what's to come in 2020 or may affect 2020? 
Well, you know, the, the, taking control of the House gives Democrats some skin in the game. Uh, and so they can't just point fingers at what Republicans are doing with total control of Washington. At the same time, um, you know, I, I think, especially if people like Andrew Gillum win in Florida, Stacey Abrams in Georgia, both of whom are, are pretty liberal Democrats, it's going to embolden the Democratic Party to say that they can nominate some pretty uh, stridently progressive candidates, which uh, we'll, we'll see if that uh, we'll see if that gamble pays off for them. That's an interesting comment, Sean, about skin in the game for the Democrats. Yeah, it uh, kind of puts a little more burden of proof on them if they get the House. Uh, the Georgia governor race getting a lot of attention. Florida is, too. But let's talk about Georgia for a second. How close is it? Um, how do you see it playing out? It's pretty clear a close race right now. I think uh, the Republican Brian Kemp has a little bit of an edge, but not a substantial edge. And then, of course, Texas. Uh, media is just loving this race believing that uh, Beto O'Rourke uh, has a real shot, does he? Is it as close as the media says? You know, I've gotten some polls suggesting that race uh, is closing. Um, I'm not so sure. Um, you know, we might have just gotten some polls that were overly optimistic for Republicans showing them up, you know, 15 points in the state or, or nine points up in the state. I think Cruz will win, but it's going to be in the low to mid-single digits. A lot of the analysis, Sean, is pretty conventional. Uh, where do you differ from some of that analysis? Well, I think people are overconfident about Republican or about Democratic prospects uh, in the House. Uh, you know, I think some of the, the reporting on Democratic prospects in New Jersey, or Republican prospects in New Jersey, is overblown. Um, same, same thing though in reverse in Texas. I think I think Texas Senate is going to be uh, a close race, but I, I don't know that they've ever had a huge chance to take that seat. Okay, thank you, Sean. Um, not being expert and uh, not having any data in my hands. Only a feel for the country. I think the Republicans will retain the House. Okay, talk to you next week. <laughs> You're listening to The Bill Bennett, Show. Bill Bennett Show. Well, I wouldn't want to be left out of the uh, chorus here. So um, as we're sitting here doing the... Uh, the show it's a week mm-hmm. uh, before the elections clogged people should go out and vote yes we tape on tuesdays so yeah we're, we're exactly a week away from election day and in your state of maryland looks like larry hey, I, I think i think governor hogan's got this man he's got a lot of support from democrats he's done a great job you know and uh and he's got a ton of support and uh hopefully we, he can bring it home i thought you know ben jealous had a cp baltimore mm-hmm his numbers are nothing. No, no, not at all. Not at all. States really, p- people look at the states very pragmatically. And I wish they looked at national elections pragmatically hmm. in terms of what, what have you done for me? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In terms of what have you done for me? As the president's now saying in these rallies, you know, are you better off than you were two years ago? And yes, the answer yeah. is yes. Uh, okay. Uh, well, you're just actually getting back in town. I Got a am. To slow down. You had a, a, a talk at a VMI, correct? Virginia Military Virginia Institute. Institute. Yes. A nice talk. Talk to the Corps of Cadets. The theme was character, uh, grit. Mm-hmm. And uh, I talked about Ronald Reagan, his character. And I talked about uh, George Herbert Walker Bush and his character. I served both of them. And I talked about Donald Trump mm-hmm. and his character. Very different. I talked about. George Herbert Walker Bush, and I use the following adjectives. I want you to listen to your clause okay. because I said he is modest, self-effacing, okay. very tolerant of other opinions, very much open to criticism, gentle, kinder, gentler. So now we turn to Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah, you're laughing. So those adjectives may not apply as mm-hmm. fully right. to Donald Trump. 
But I said uh, he's got a, a public character which is unassailable when it comes to theme of the show, keeping his promises. Right. No, absolutely. So I, uh, I was introduced the the general, General P, very fine gentleman, uh, veteran of a lot of uh, military theaters. Um, introduced me at the Virginia Military Institute in Lexington, Virginia, and said uh, it was our great honor to have Secretary Bennett here in 1987 to deliver the commencement address, and we're so pleased to have him back. So when I took the stage, I said, I remember the commencement in 1987, and I'm delighted to know how pleased you are to have me back. You were so happy with me in 1987 (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you immediately turned around 31 years later and We've invited me back. We've got to get Bennett back. So when you have lunch with someone, say, let's do it again soon. See you in 31 years. There you go. So they took the joke. Well. I mean, they, you know. And when I finished, I said, now, I'd love to come back here. Don't wait so long next day because I'll be 106. <laughs> with just as much to say. I would no, say. I would, yeah, you'll have yeah. to help me to the podium. Yeah, no know, problem. You know, no problem. Anyway. By the way, you are aware uh, Alabama LSU this weekend, right? I, I guess I guess there's really eight p.m. I guess there's Saturday. really nothing else to mm-hmm. talk about. I mean, I, I well, I guess we've just spent an hour and fifteen minutes talking about other things. <laughs> LSU Alabama. I, I I think LSU is good and they're strong, mm-hmm. but I think Alabama's in a different world. Yeah, yeah. We'll see. Uh, I remember the game a couple of years ago where they went halftime zero zero. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could be like that for a while, but I don't know. I I think the LSU offense is going to have trouble moving on Alabama. They've got more confidence, but um, Alabama's a league of their own. Except I'll tell you, who's looking very strong is Clemson. Clemson's looking good, really yeah. very strong. Mm-hmm. And Georgia's making its way back. That Georgia-Florida game was right. supposed to be very even. It was ended up pretty one-sided. Mm-hmm. Well, Georgia can, yeah, can find themselves in a situation where they're in the SEC championship game. Mm-hmm. they got to beat Alabama, and then they're back in the playoffs. And if they do that and Alabama's yeah. undefeated, yeah. Alabama will get into. Oh, well, yeah. Um, and you're kind not to bring up some, one other school that I root for all the time, you know. Uh, let's see. That would not be Notre Dame. That would not be Ohio State, but that would be Texas. Yeah. Longhorns. Yeah. yeah, they were seventh, and then they went to Stillwater and mm-hmm. got beat by Oak State, Oklahoma State. But, you know, they're coming back. They're coming it's back. It's going to take a little longer. Right. Right. And when I, when I return to VMI at 106, maybe the Horns <laughs> will be back, you know. <laughs> right. But, uh, yeah, college football season's getting real interesting. Mm-hmm. I think LSU's now, I think, ranked four. We'll find out Tuesday night, tonight, actually. Yeah, the, yeah, the, the first final rankings. Yeah. Uh, but I think Alabama will knock them out of there. And then I think it's Michigan or Georgia who's going to end up being there. But it'll be Michigan, Georgia, okay. uh, LSU fighting for number four, provided Notre Dame goes unbeaten. But I'm not so sure. Yeah. Uh, they're going to Northwestern this weekend, and look out. It's going to be tough. Northwestern's pretty strong. And I think they've beaten them the last three times they've played, or the last two times, something like that. I don't know, but they're, they're surprisingly okay. strong. Mm-hmm. And it looked like our friend Phil Steele told us that uh, Notre Dame had a very strong schedule. It looked that way at the beginning of the year. Not so. Right. Stanford right. didn't turn out mm-hmm. to have much. Auburn. Uh, Wasn't that Auburn they played? No, they didn't play Auburn. They played Michigan. Michigan, 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 pretty good. Yeah, but that was the first game, Mm -hmm. and then uh, USC, which is usually a battle of the titans. They're not very strong. No, not at all. So we'll see. But uh, thanks for reminding me, and we could go another hour on this. I'll uh, (laughs) I'll wait. (laughs)
That does it for today, folks. To catch up on previous episodes of the show, go to BillBennettShow.com. You can follow me on Twitter at William J. Bennett. You can like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett. Feel free to email the show. I'd love to hear from you. It's BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. Please share this podcast with your family and friends. Almost everybody's listening. We're not going to be happy till everybody's listening. Exactly. We won't stop until everybody's listening. We won't stop until everybody's listening. We'll catch up next week. That's Claude Jennings right there. Claude, any final thoughts on the election? Uh, We'll we'll see. Uh, I'm really interested to see what happens in Florida and Georgia with these governor races. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, I want to see what happens. And we'll find out early about those East Coast stuff. That's Mm -hmm. good. Okay. We'll have a special election show for you next week. 